I'm Mary Parker, and welcome to this episode of Eureka's Sounds of Science. Organizations like the Centers for Disease Control and the World Health Organization are getting serious about combating antibiotic resistance. We all know by now that the overuse of antibiotics has led to the evolution of superbugs that can't be treated with typical medicine. Through a series of global and local programs working under the name One Health, many governments are looking to fight this trend in many ways, including reducing or totally eliminating antibiotic use in animals. Unfortunately, animals still get sick. Joining me today is Natasha Ortega, Director of Laboratory Operations at Charles Rivers Avian Site in Connecticut. She is adept at finding new ways to protect her birds from common infections and diseases without using antibiotics. She was the second ever guest on Sounds of Science, and I'm glad to have her back. Welcome, Natasha. Hi, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for coming. So I'd like to start by getting your impression of the One Health initiative, especially how it relates to your area of expertise, chickens. So I think the uh, One Health initiative is a great initiative. Um, It's a global one where it it looks at not only people's health, but also the animal health and the health of the environment and how they're all interconnected. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, take antibiotic resistance bacteria. This topic is heavily looked at under the One Health and that being Um, It's really looking at the usage of antibiotics and specifically looking at the use of it in livestock and how it turned out during investigation that there's a significant amount that's being used. And it's being used not only to treat the animals, but also uh, in some places maybe used as a uh, growth promoter, Mm -hmm. um, which has been banned over in the EU. But other countries may be using it for that purpose. And so they do administer antibiotics as well to kind of prevent diseases. And so how it relates to chickens is um, chickens are bred to be fast growing, at least here in the U.S., due to consumer demand Mm -hmm. for a more natural chicken, they have been switching away from using antibiotics and and going towards more antibiotic-free or no antibiotics ever in their labels. And so they raise these birds without any antibiotics. And the whole purpose is to control the amount of antibiotics used. So if an animal is sick, you do apply the antibiotics and they don't fall under antibiotic free anymore. They would fall under a different category, but it's really looking at the animal health. And so with the increased amount of disease that's occurring, there's an alternative that needs to be a natural alternative that needs to be um, created in order for the, to help out the poultry industry for that. Right. And just so to be clear, the Charles River chickens aren't used for meat. They're used for research and for the vaccine growing in the eggs, things like that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you mentioned before that there were different antibiotic-free labels. Can you explain the difference between those labels? Uh, Yes. So there's multiple different ways of saying it. Um, Some labels will say raised without antibiotics, and some will say no antibiotics ever, which I'm sure many of you have seen in the grocery store when you pick up a a package of chicken. And so it's, it's different ways of marketing it. But really, um, it's the animals not raised with antibiotics at all. Mm-hmm. So they're pretty much the same. Um, and versus a label that will say no medically important antibiotics. So that would mean, you know, antibiotics are used to treat people would not be used in treating these animals. Mm-hmm. So that's the difference between those. So last time you were on the podcast, you were talking about a new product that 
you guys were developing. Can you give us an update on that product? Yes. Yeah, so just a, a brief background to, to summarize the previous podcast, we were coming out with an all natural product that can be applied in place of antibiotics. This is uh, antibodies that the birds will produce. So you expose these birds to um, a pathogen, for example, and they will produce the antibodies in their serum. And as they do, they transfer the antibodies to the egg yolks. And the whole purpose of that is to protect the chicks when they hatch uh, with up to the first two weeks of its life to protect against any environmental um, pathogens that could cause disease for them. Mm-hmm. So kind of taking that same concept and uh, harvesting the antibodies, then you create this product that would be administered in the broiler industry, for example, um, through the drinking water. So the birds will then ingest the antibodies and it will bind to the bacteria of interest and prevent disease or colonization of the bacteria. And when you were originally on the podcast, this was just an idea or something that you were testing, but now it's actually started to go into production, right? Yes. Yeah, so we are actually, we went through a few R&D studies and we had some great promising results. We are focusing on one disease in particular, necrotic enteritis. And so with the results that we've seen, and we are pursuing USDA licensure for this product. So it would be a, a first one for us to go through that market. <laughs> Very cool. So on to some of your own personal accomplishments. I understand that you've recently earned your PhD in pathology. Congratulations. Thank you. Yes. Can you tell us about the research that you did for your dissertation? Yes, uh, my PhD work was in chicken parvovirus. So chicken parvovirus is not too well known. It was discovered in the 1980s and it kind of went a little dormant for a while until it started creeping up because it causes viral enteritis. Mm -hmm. It's a similar virus to the, I, I know that dogs often get parvo and I think there's a vaccine for that, right? similar virus? Yes. Similar. Yes. Similar to that. Um, there's a little, there's a difference though as well. And I, I apologize, it's viral, viral enteric disease um, in broilers that it causes. But uh, the difference is this virus does not cause high mortality, like for example, the canine parvovirus does. Mm-hmm. But what it does is that it has been implicated along with other pathogens to cause runting stunting syndrome which they abbreviate as RSS. And so what the name indicates is the broilers would become stunted compared to their hatchmates. So when you look at an image, a severe case of RSS, you'll see one bird will look like a chick, for example, while the other chicken will look like a really meaty, like market weight type bird. So what happens is over time, as you um, place more birds in the house, you'll start seeing an increase in stunted growth for these birds. And for parvovirus, um, it's not as easy as some other vaccines where you can grow it in cell culture to produce the vaccine, or you could grow it in eggs. It actually requires a live bird. Um, it grows, it replicates in the intestines of a live bird. So that's when I thought of what is there a way that we can produce a vaccine or create one, I should say, using a different method. And so I used a Pichia pastoris expression system to express the structural proteins. There was previous publications that showed chicken parvovirus using an expression system like baclovirus, for example, looking at the structural protein Mm -hmm. of VP2. My research focused on the VP1 gene itself, which codes for all the structural proteins. And so I then took this and put it into a Pichia pastoris system, which is a yeast expression system was able to produce a structural protein successfully. And in my PhD work, I did a immunogenicity study as well as a challenge study. 
And what I was able to show was that when using the VP1 gene to express all the structural proteins, we were able to show protection in the birds. So it gives us one step closer to um, coming out with a vaccine. That's amazing. How did your defense go? It went well. <laughs> so I tend to speak fast when I'm really passionate about something. So I uh, went through that defense, oral defense pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> But um, I think it went very well. And, and the, the important thing is that I was able to come in from industry. So I worked full time um, at Charles River Laboratories while obtaining my PhD part time. Um, and so I brought industry knowledge to them. So they were able to see both sides of it, not only just academia, but industry. Right. Yeah. That to them was very impressive. Oh, yeah. That's incredibly valuable. I understand you want to develop a vaccine based on your research. So what would go into making your vaccine available on the market? Like, what does it take to go from research proven to selling it? Um, so really, it's taking the all the work that I did, which is actually pretty great. I was able to combine it with uh, Charles River as well. We would take this research and we would talk to our clients. So we have clients that produce vaccines for the poultry industry and kind of go through the process for them to show them what the results look like, showing that it's promising. Mm -hmm. But also this parvovirus uh, disease would take place over in uh, EU. So I think that's where a big market would be. And so it's targeting vaccine manufacturers that would target the EU to be able to distribute this. Okay. And for something like selling a product like this in the EU, what could you estimate would be the time between getting someone to, to run with it and time to market? Because you'd still need to do all kinds of other tests, I assume, similar to getting a drug approved. Right. It does take some time. Um, obviously, the study that I did was small scale. When you're pursuing licensure approval, you have to go through a larger type field study. You have to go through safety studies. Um, so there is a lot more that goes into it. I would say probably around at least two years to be able to do this. But again, that's working with um, a vaccine manufacturer and be able to uh, provide them the antigen they need so they can then do their studies because they would have to formulate this into a vaccine. What other kinds of vaccines are commonly used for chickens? Um, so the hot topics, I guess you can say, I go to many <laughs> poultry conferences, um, are avian <laughs> real virus as well as infectious bursal disease virus. So there's commercial vaccines that are out there um, that a lot of the vaccine manufacturers supply for the industry. Um, but sometimes there may be breaks that occur that the commercial vaccines will not be able to protect against. And so that's when you go through a different avenue called autogenous vaccines, where you take a field sample, um, and this is all through USDA, you take a field sample and you grow it, uh, you inactivate mm -hmm. it, and then we would then, for example, Avian Vaccine Services does offer this uh, product is called for further, for further manufacture. We would make the antigen for our clients and we will inactivate it and we'll provide that bulk antigen for our customer. So we can be able to do this in a quickly time, a quick manner for them. They can mm -hmm. then take that and distribute the vaccine back to where the isolate came from. And so that's a quick method of being able to combat um, a problem that a commercial vaccine wouldn't be able to take care of. Right. And bringing it back to the One Health initiative, how does having all of these different vaccines feed into that goal? So it's kind of tricky. So when looking at broilers that are produced, are fast growing, 
uh, genetically fast growing. It's kind of hard to uh, provide a vaccine that will be able to protect when it's at the mid to the near end point of the um, growth process. So that's when you look for an alternative. Um, things like the antibodies that Charles River will be uh, pursuing for licensure, something that can be able to help the industry to do that. But there's also other natural alternatives, although not as specific as antibodies, but they do have things like oregano oil that they use, probiotics, prebiotics. But again, one that's more targeted, one that's more specific, um, like the antibodies is something that I think would have a great impact and would really support the One Health initiative. It's always important to think of the animal's health. Mm -hmm. And there's like a, a diagram uh, like a process flow. And the answer is yes, no. So they'll look at it and they say the animal's sick and it's due to, let's say, an, uh, a bacterial infection. The answer is yes. Okay. Is there an alternative? Mm -hmm. If the answer is yes, use the alternative if it's very effective. If the answer is no, then you should apply the antibiotic. Um, and that's very important. Um, so always keep the animal's health in the forefront and keep that in mind. And if there's an alternative like the antibodies, it's effective. That's great. If not, um, then please use the antibiotics uh, in, a, in a more responsible way. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, that's the tragedy of the antibiotic resistance developing. It's that, you know, we need antibiotics in order to help sick animals, sick people, but we also need to keep in mind the overall population health that, you know, this whole crisis has led to. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's actually one talk that I found interesting at the Antibiotic Symposium. And it mm -hmm. makes you think about antibiotic usage and where where antibiotic resistance can come from. And so one of the talks, and this was a few years ago, but it stuck in my mind, was everyone was talking about the amount of antibiotic used in livestock and look at the livestock and look how much is being used. But has anyone really looked at companion animals? and looking at how does it get from an antibiotic resistant bacteria to get from an animal to a person? Has anyone ever looked at your dog, for example, and how veterinarians apply antibiotics to your animal? Is there something that needs to be uh, some type of training or classes to kind of know what is viral versus what is antibacterial and to not just administer antibiotics because my animal is acting differently today. Um, and so that was something that was through a talk that I found very interesting. At the end of her presentation, she had a, a picture of a woman sleeping with her dog and the dog was nose to nose with the person in the bed. And she goes, is this a source of where it could come from? And it just left everyone quiet. <laughs> I think everyone's starting to look yeah. at their dogs and their cats and they're like, hmm, <laughs> maybe we should look here. <laughs> I mean, what am I going to do? Push my cat onto the floor? Not likely. Because right, a lot of people do love their companion animals and they hug, they're like their babies. And so they hold them and they kiss them. Yeah. And, you know, it's just like if you take a, around Easter time when, when chicks hatch and people want to take these cute chicks and they, they go kiss it and then they get mm -hmm. salmonella. They wonder where it's coming from. It's, um, you know, it's just something to think about. I think that's no one really looked at that. And so she brought up a good point. And I think that's a, a focus that should be looked at as well. Yeah. And I think that absolutely feeds back into the idea of One Health, where you can't just think of it in terms of giving antibiotics to patients or to livestock. It's got to be everything. Everything in the environment has an impact. It does. It does. And it leach out. The antibiotics will leach out into the ocean. And they found antibiotic resistance in mammalian uh, aquatic animals. I mean, um, oh, wow. yeah, it's it's been isolated everywhere. 
So even in the ocean. So it's it's definitely going around like it's, it relates to the environmental health. So it's very important that we have a control on this. Definitely something to keep in yeah, mind. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you very much, Natasha, for coming and talking with us again about this topic. I'm sure we will uh, talk to you again in the future because this is something that's not going away anytime soon. Yep. Very interesting. Um, I'd love to learn more (laughs) and more about it. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Thank you very much. Thanks.